The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Gilbert, that might have to be on the docket soon. That's an awesome old song and a good story, a sad but tragic but good story behind it. Well, I invite your attention this morning to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Uh, As you're turning there, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, we are on page 61 of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, page 61. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in chapter 20, verse 13, page 61. Uh, Just a couple quick announcements for you as reminders. We are not having a trunk or treat tomorrow night, so if you're here and want to eat candy by yourself, have at it. Uh, You are more than welcome to do that, but we will not be here. Uh, The share team and the leadership team decided a few months ago to take a a busy year off this year, so uh, we'll have more stuff coming for you. You say, well, we have it every year. We do, but when you work all the events that are great people, you have worked this year. We decided it was time just to take a rest and do that. Uh, just be safe tomorrow. Encourage you to find ways to share the gospel. We're going to have little baggies in our house because our kids go to bed at 630. Uh, so we don't want any knocking on the door. So we're going to put a little baggie out with a gospel track and candy. Uh, take as many as you want and share them with your friends, right? Uh, that'll be the good thing. Second thing I want to remind you is an historical note before we get started with the sermon. It was 499 years ago tomorrow that Martin Luther took a nail and a big piece of paper in German, which I'll never be able to pronounce. Adam Nisley, this is where I need your German skills, brother. And you, he took it, and he nailed it on a door in Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany, the 95 theses that started the Protestant Reformation. Friends, if you're not familiar with that part of church history, I would encourage you to, to look up Martin Luther and the 95 theses. We don't agree with everything on him, but it was a great, brought great clarity of the gospel after many dark ages. I would greatly encourage you to do that. Uh, it's interesting that one of the biggest church history days is also one of the biggest holidays commercially in America, isn't it? Always works out that way. Hallmark has, I don't know how Hallmark does it, but they're in every nook and cranny, aren't they? But I encourage you to read through that. You know, I am not a huge Seinfeld fan, but last week I referenced Seinfeld and I found another good reference for you. How many are Seinfeld fans? Anybody? This is, some of you don't even know what Seinfeld is. This is before you were born. And, it, and I, my, I used to get mad at my old pastor, Willie Davis. He used to quote things from the 50s and 60s and looked at me and said, you young man, you weren't even born yet. Well, I feel like him now. <laughs> but Seinfeld, you remember there was an episode of Seinfeld where George gets humiliated. George, in this picture, is eating so much shrimp. A guy runs up to him and says, hey, George, the ocean called and they said they're running out of shrimp. Why don't you slow down a little bit, buddy? And he gets mad. He gets humiliated because he's eating so much shrimp so fast. So he spends the rest of the episode trying to plot how he can get this guy back. And finally, he sets it up all over again. Maybe you remember this episode? He sets it up, and he gets to a place where he's in this picture eating all this stuff. And the guy walks up to him again and said, hey, George. And he said, well, hey, not so nice guy. <laughs> well, hey, not so nice guy. I called, and they're running out of you at the local store. And he was just getting mad at him because he just went on a tirade about how mad he was about this guy not being nice to him. And he said, hey, not Mr. Nice Guy. They're running out of you as well. You have to see it to believe it. 
It really is more funny than I just presented. I promise you that. Here's my point. Sometimes the illustrations don't go as far as they should. We are talking about the sixth commandment today, aren't we? This is a commandment that is very Seinfeld-esque in this sense. George spent his whole time trying to plot because he was what? He was mad. He was angry because someone told him the ocean wanted all those shrimp back. Well, you know what? This is a commandment where many of us think, well, I'm glad you're covering this, Pastor, but really, I mean, honestly, I got this one down pretty well. I haven't killed anyone lately except those flies and those oak mites that are on everyone walking around. But friends, this command is not just about murdering cold-bloodedly. It's about valuing the lives of other people to the extent at which you see them as so valuable, so valuable as precious people that they are the most precious thing on earth and loving them and leveraging your life to protect and prosper them as God has done so. 1 John 3.15 reminds us of this. It says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Pretty stark words, aren't they? James, Jesus' half-brother in other verses of the New Testament, we'll get there later on, said that to command, uh, basically not to murder, has everything to do about how we treat the poor. Ooh. And Ezekiel and the Apostle Paul will study this later on in the sermon, that they understood that if they didn't carry the gospel to people around the world as God had sent them, they would be guilty of a kind of murder. And I, I, I don't know if you're like this. As I was preparing this, I thought about how does this apply to me even now? But you think about this. George, in this episode, if you go and watch this episode, he is plotting. He's thinking about this thing all the time. It's kind of like when you lose an argument, right? You know you play back in your head, and you're thinking about it all the time. Anyone else do this? You replay it. You are the best judge and lawyer at that time. You play it back. And when they say this, you say, oh, yeah? What about this? Boom. And you nail them. And they say this, and you say, oh, yeah, boom, that would have been awesome to say. And you win every argument in your head, right? You do that. I've lost a lot of arguments. I really have. I've lost a lot of them, but I've never lost a rerun. Never, ever have I lost a rerun. (laughs) And that may seem honest and sincere and, and harmless, but it's the core of what this commandment gets at and what we will call a murderous spirit. Yes, even replaying the things in your mind told you each week these commandments get harder and harder, don't they? Friends, what is the big idea? If you're visiting with us, the big idea is just the rifle shot summary, the thesis statement of the sermon is this. The sacredness of God's name and the sacredness of human life always go together. Where God's name is no longer uplifted, revered, made popular, neither is life. And that's what I want to do today. I want to look at why valuing other people as God values them is so important because we fall woefully short of this. I'm going to build this case and how it applies to you. And I want to warn you up front, this is going to get a little rough. You say, Darren, every one of your sermons is a little rough. I know. Trust me, God does that. But this is a tough sermon. This is not just about cold-blooded killing, although that's certainly part of it. This hits us in many levels that, once again, we will see are very practical as we live out our lives before God. So where are we going today? Four things. This is not your class. If you're a seminary student here, this is not how you usually outline a sermon, okay? Just take this. This is not textbook. But we're going to look at four. We're going to answer some questions first. What about Genesis 9, 1 through 6? Here in a minute, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. What, what about that passage? Very, very important. And what is not included in this commandment? In other words, what is not prohibited? What is something that we can do in this commandment as far as murder or killing? You say, well, that's weird. We'll talk about it. What is included in this commandment? What is not right? What is not something you can do as a result of this commandment? And then we'll hit the application part. Friends, I just want to remind you, we are in our study of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, no other gods, 
The second commandment, have no graven images. The third commandment, take God's name not in vain. It's more than just a verbal. Fourth commandment is take a rest. Amen. God, lots of us need that. And the fifth commandment last week was honor your parents, the institution of your parents at home and for life. If you're able to stand this morning as we do at our church, we stand in honor of God's word. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20. And I would actually just like to read, we'll start in verse, uh, verse 1. I'd like to read all the way up to verse 13 to catch us up to where we were. Exodus chapter 20, reading out of the ESV, the same as the Pew Bibles. The Bible says this, And God spoke all these words, verse 1, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of, uh, land of Egypt and the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love to those who keep and love, love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord, name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord God made and blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Or in the older King James, thou shalt not kill. Tough words, but vital words to you. And I want to remind you as we go into this study, this is not, Christian, another checklist for you to do. This is not, hey, I'm a good Christian this week, check it off. This is a heart issue before it's an obedience issue for you. I just want to remind that to you as we go before the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray as we enter a tough topic, but one that is very germane to what we are experiencing, especially on November 8th, as we talk about issues and things. Father, this is not a political speech. This is your word. This is a sermon. This is a supernatural, we believe, Father, because your spirit must move among us. But Father, at the same time, what we learn here applies to everything out there. So Lord, I pray this is not an academic exercise. I pray this is not another whatever else it could be, but I pray this is your people before you, the Holy God, as contrite, as open, as being led by your Spirit to the Word. Father, show us where we need to change. Show us where we need to be challenged, but show us also where you are comforting us to remind us of your forgiveness, your mercy, and your presence. Father, thank you for each one here. We know there's many needs in this congregation. Father, we pray by your grace that you may meet those according to your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. may be seated. Thank you. Well, as we come to this commandment, I just I want you to flip back, if, if you have your Bible with you, back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Uh, Genesis, of course, being the first book of the Bible. Chapter 9, the big number, uh, the verse number being 6, the small number. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And, and just hold your place there. We'll be there in just a second. But I, I just want to remind you this morning that this is a very controversial and Christians across the spectrum have really separated over this commandment. What does it mean? What does it not mean? I, I acknowledge those differences this morning. I just want to know what the Bible says. That's why we're here today, more than anything. But the commandment, you shall not kill, 
appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 9. Right after God has destroyed the world through a flood. You know your Bibles well enough, you know this. Noah's Ark is not just about cute little animals smiling on a Hallmark card, although that is cute. It is about sin, and it is about God's judgment. There's been a huge disaster. And whenever there's a huge disaster, if you think about anything in the world from 9-11 to World War II to the Holocaust, anything, there's a desensitizing of preciousness, of the preciousness of human life. Why? Because we are so overwhelmed with what's happened, we just feel so small and insignificant that we feel like we're going to be wiped out at any moment. So why don't we protect ourselves to the nth degree? But immediately after getting off the ark, God reminds Noah of the preciousness of human life to him. Even though, literally, friends, think about this. Eight to ten people were left in the world at this point, and a whole bunch of stinky animals. And God said, remember how precious this is. Look back at verse 5, if you will, there in Genesis chapter 9. And it says this, And for your lifeblood, this is God speaking to Moses, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I'll require it, and from every man. From his fellow man I'll require a reckoning for the life. In verse 6, For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here's the key phrase, I think. For God made man in his own image. This is the first, it's interesting, isn't it? That this is the same reference in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where God made man in his image. But after the killing of all life off because of sin, the judgment, they had, and please know, God is not an unjust God. Just as today where God has given warning shot after warning shot after warning shot to remind people there is a God, there is a judgment coming. God gave a hundred some years to Noah and all they did was ridicule him. If you can think about it, if you can hear the knocking, let us in, Noah, let us in, let us in, let us in. And God shut the door. And sent off Noah. He had given him a hundred plus years to repent, and they just mocked and jeered him. But after all that death, God reminds Noah about the price for taking a life is another life. If you take a life, you must pay with your life. There's nothing on earth that you can use to pay for another's life. It's almost like, if you use an example today, if God said that the penalty for murder would be to give $5 million to the family of the victims and then spend 50 years in prison, God would have put a price on life, but he doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He says the only thing that can equal the value of a life is another life. In other words, human life, friends, is precious. It's priceless. There's no earthly equivalent. Now, if you're reading this or you're reading this with me, you, you're, you may be getting up on the obvious reference to the death penalty or capital punishment. And you may have a problem with that because you wonder how effective it is in our today and our age. And let's be honest. There are problems with our system. There's inequity with how it's administered. There's inequity in our culture. Don't get hung up on that question here. That's not the rabbit we're going to chase. Because the main point God is making here is what you need to carry away is what? Human life is precious. And it's nothing on earth equals its value. That's why you're going to see Amy put up here the first application point. Friends, it is a great reminder to us today, before we even go further with this, that the ultimate purpose of your life is to show that Jesus is more precious than life. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, is that as you live out your life for Christ, you show through your actions how you handle difficult people, how you handle people of different races, how you handle people of different ethnicities, how you handle people from the other side of the tracks or who, who grew up in the, the boondocks, as that old oldie song used to say. 
The fact is, the more you live for Christ, the more you understand the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the more you understand life is precious. Human life is precious. There is no equivalent. So now why is human life precious? Look back at verse 6. I've already noted this, but read it again. For God made man and woman and child in his own image. Friends, human life is so precious that we are made after the character of God. What's that mean? That we look like God, that like Mormons, we can become gods of our own universe someday? Not at all. That is false theology. But to be in God's image means you reflect certain parts of him. Now, all creation to some extent has the character of God in them, the image of God. But scripture says that above all other things, man himself is to reflect God. We are the only ones created in God's image just like that. So will there be pets in heaven? That's a good ask the pastor question. We're not going there today. But what I will say is how well something reflects something else depends on what it's made of. A mirror reflects better than water. But if you are, I've been watching these survival shows at night before I go to bed. My wife thinks I'm funny when I do this, but like Survivor Man and Man vs. Wild, which is the fake one of the two, by the way. You know, and he's sometimes he's looking in the water to get his mirror. He knows he doesn't have a mirror. That's a good mirror. And water is a better mirror than even a rock. But when it comes to reflecting the image of God, men and women are like the mirrors of creation. You are, and every person has the potential to be something for the glory of God. They reflect God more clearly than anything else on earth. Friends, listen, this is so key. When you and I think of other people as anything less than God created them to be, we devalue life. And listen, it's not surprising. This is something our enemy, Satan, wants us to do whom the Bible, John 8, says, is a murderer from the beginning and is desperately trying to make us forget this. Through our educational system, through our science system, he's trying, Satan is, to wipe out any vestige that God has created us in his image. Think about that. Well, you're just one of those people, or you're just a nerd, or you're just an athlete, you're just a jock, whatever. Those are all devaluing the life that God has given us. If it's true what the Bible says about Satan, that one of his primary things is to be a murderer, well, then it makes sense that one of his primary strategies would be to devalue human life. Amy, I'm going to skip this next slide. I've changed it since the last time we were there. But I want you to to go ahead and do the picture of the professor, Amy, if you will. I want you to imagine that there's an evolutionist that stands up here. and, And you ask that evolutionist, how do you end human suffering? Do you know what that person would say, most likely? He would look at that question and say, why... Well, why is there suffering in this world? Is it just a cosmic tragedy? Because if life is nothing but a random cosmic accident, then the only reason our species is here is because the previous species underwent suffering and death to make room for us. So what is so special about us as a human being, that professor might say. But for you to say that human suffering is unjust while you chew on a turkey sandwich at Thanksgiving, and that turkey died a death that he didn't deserve for you so you could fill your belly on Thanksgiving... You have to show me why human death and pain is different from all their death in the universe. And they might say, well, that's why I don't eat meat. Well, that's a choice, but that doesn't explain that the innocent little microbes of your body is killing right now to keep you healthy for eating all that junk food that you eat, even if it's not meat. Well, that's different. Why? Why is it different? Well, maybe in the scheme of evolution, it's different, you would say to them. But if we're just microbes, then we need to be eliminated for greater life. Friends, that that is how the arguments go from the other side. Where do you draw the line? As a Christian, the Bible gives an answer to that, and that is we human beings are made in the image of God. We are precious people. We really, really are. 
You know, it's almost like another college professor I've heard say this. Uh, they, they say we're no different than the animals. You're just another animal. Well, that's encouraging. Sometimes I run like a cheetah. Sometimes I can barely get out of bed like an elephant, you know, but that's how it goes. We may instinctively be inside, have animalistic instincts. We, we long for protection and all those things. But friends, we know that the death of a human and the death of a plant are not the same thing. Look, I remember watering my former pastor's plants when they were gone. Please don't ever ask me to water your plants again. Natalie knows this story. It had not rained. It was in 2013 when it hadn't rained for like five years. And you guys remember this, you, or 2012, it hadn't rained from, and I was just watering away. I overwatered them to the fact, I think, that they died the instant I put more water on them. It was that bad. But I knew that even though my pastor was, was going to have my tail, he was still not mad at me because a, a plant death is not the same as a human death. I think you understand that. Friends, if all this world is is a natural world and there's everything's equal and everything's the same, then why don't we just take everyone out right now that we don't like? It's because God has said that we are made in the image of God and the death of our soul is an unnatural thing. It's an unnatural thing. We murder in this world because we devalue those around us. That's Genesis 9. So let's go on. Okay, Darren, I, I'm tracking with you. What's the second thing? Well, let's talk about what's not included in this commandment. This is the positive, if you will. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but this is the positive. If Genesis says that life is precious, then where do we go from here? You know, I started to make a list of all the cold-blooded murderers recounted in the Bible, and there are quite a few. And there's several reoccurring things. I want to go with you. On, on, the, on the left side of your screen, you're going to see four reasons why we murder according to the Bible. There's more, but let's start with the first one. The first one is greed. Do you know why we murder? We murder because we're greedy. Someone has something someone else wants, so they kill to get it. Think about this. If you're familiar with your Bible, you think of Esau. Remember the story of Esau? He tries to kill Jacob because he wants the father's blessing that Jacob stole. Do you remember that story? And how about whole nations invade each other to get their hands on resources? My wife hated this movie, and I'm not endorsing it. I love Independence Day. I love the movies Independence Day. We watched the second one, which is a big downer, by the way. Don't watch it. It's terrible. But it's about aliens trying to come and take over the world to steal our resources, and they were invading us because they, we had what they wanted. That's greed, folks. It's all across everywhere. Another reason is jealousy we murder. It's similar, but someone else has something you want, and you want to kill them because they have it, and you don't. Classic example here, Cain and Abel, right? Cain uh, murders Abel because Abel has a blessing Cain wants, and, and he wants all that sort of thing. What about King Saul? He spends half of his life hunting down uh, David like he's a dog because he's jealous of the attention David's getting. The song was, Saul kills thousands, but David kills tens of thousands. Another reason we murder is because of fear. You think someone might be able to take away something you don't want to lose. King David, again, you remember the story, Bathsheba. King David sees Bathsheba bathing, and he lusts after her. He impregnates her, and he gets to the point where he realizes that, oh, they're going to find out about this. So he calls Uriah, her husband, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines of the battle, or back to the, the, the palace first, and he tries to make it look like Uriah got her pregnant as her husband, and eventually that doesn't work. So what does he do? He's fearful that he's going to be found out. His reputation is going to be tarnished. So he sends Uriah to the front lines where he knows he's going to be killed. And of course, he gets killed. And David murders him by extension and takes Bathsheba for his own wife. Or think about Hitler killing all the Jews because he thought they were the problem with the world, which is not in the Bible, by the way. 
Finally, what about personal vengeance? Someone ticks you off, and the only thing you think you can satisfy that with is death itself. Absalom, David's son, kills his brother for violating his stepsister is a great example. Friends, the common thread in all these cases is that someone values something more than they value human life. I hope you see that. I told you before, and it's worth repeating again, this all comes back to idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is needing something so badly you feel like you can't go on without it. Murder, like all other sins, begins in idolatry. You're not satisfied with your place in life, so you take the powers of life and death in your hands, literally. You say, well, Darren, this, that's great. I still haven't killed anyone, right? I'm okay. I'm good. I've never killed for any of those reasons. But hold on, let me, let me back up for a minute. Before I do, let me tell you what's not included in this command, then we'll get to the third point, what is included. Just so you, there's many questions about this, and friends, there's a lot of variation of opinion here, and I don't have time to hash out everything, but here's what's not included in the positive of this command, how you're not murdering by doing certain things. This is a classical understanding of the scriptures through this thing. First thing, what else is here? Self-defense is here. Exodus 22, verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. I do not have time to unpack that hermeneutic, and there are great arguments on both sides. But biblically speaking, it's classically been understood that self-defense is there. If a woman is being uh, assaulted on the streets, and I walk down the street, and I walk by them, I cannot in my good conscience sit back and wait for that person just to be devalued of life by letting them go. I would hope that my morals, I hope my spirituality would kick in and say I would protect that person's life. I really do. What about number two? Lethal force by police and capital punishment are not necessarily murder. A lot of times we have Christian policemen come up or, or say, is it okay that I carry my gun and what if I have to use it? Should I be giving out little Bibles instead? I mean, should I be stun gunning myself instead of the assailant? I mean, good questions. Friends, the scripture says, Exodus 22.3, Genesis 9, Romans 13.1-4, that God ordains human governments and their use of deadly force to protect, a way, protect as a way of protecting life. In the same way, capital punishment is presented in scripture not as an assault on the image of God, but as a defense as an assault on the image of God. This is not a political statement as much as it is a theological one. I'm not trying to open a can of worms here, and let's be honest, I'm not commenting here on the justice system. Any of you work in the justice system, you know there have been people who've been exonerated for things they never did and people who died for things they never did. But I'm simply saying that the Old and New Testaments both recognize that a government is given right to justify, justly punish a murderer. If they miss, and here's the key, friends, if they misuse that authority, they will answer to God for it. But governments and police forces that carry weapons are God-ordained institutions. The Apostle Paul says he did this as an act of mercy to us. See Romans 13. So that on the earth the preciousness of life could be preserved. And that is what it goes back to. That phrase, don't murder, don't kill, in the scriptures refers to a clearly judicial thing. If a policeman kills wrongly someone in our nation out of vengeance, out of whatever else other than what is prohibited in Scripture, we consider that to be murder. But if they are doing it to protect the state or society in a way that is just, the Bible, I believe, says that that is not murder. That is not in the way that it is said. What about just war? We're just hitting all the hot-button topics today, aren't we? What about just war? Friends, many wars, in fact, 
are murderous and unjust, even some that have been fought by our own country. And I love our country. Please do not hear me. I love this country. But many wars we have fought have been unjust. But that said, some wars are necessary to protect innocent life. And if wars are conducted for that reason, then the Bible, from what I understand from study, would not label the actions of soldiers as murderer. It's interesting that as John was asked in Luke, uh, the book of Luke, he spoke to soldiers. He never said to put down their arms. Jesus, when he talked to centurions, when he talked to military people, never said to put down their arms, but he did say there's a right context for that. Now, I'm not addressing which wars are just or unjust. You can have that discussion outside of here. But what I am saying is that sometimes the most loving, life-protecting thing you can do is go to war. I told you someone else needs to get up here and preach these sermons. These are tough topics. So that is what is not included in this command, and there's probably more. So what is, friends, the prohibition here? Number three. Tracking with me? What is number three? The command here is referring to a specific type of killing. The Hebrew word is very clear. It's a a taking of innocent life. So what does that include in the negative? Friends, there's several things that includes. Look, if you just get ticked off at someone and you go and just cold-blooded murder them, that is wrong. I don't have to spell that out. You're church-going people. If you're visiting, you're, you're here for a good reason. That's wrong. We, it's completely wrong. Well, what about, and yes, this is going to touch. Friends, I understand that what I'm about to say is going to touch some political nerves. That is not my goal here today. I am not a politician. I am a pastor. I've been called to, to as Matt and Gilbert know, to speak the foolishness of God's Word because to the world's ears it may be foolishness. But what I'm about to say is the absolute holocaust that is happening before us every day in this hour, right before us every single day. It's abortion, friends. This is not a Republican platform. This isn't a conservative platform. This is what the Bible says. Does that make sense? This is not trying to be political. This is trying to be Bible-centric, to be Christ-centered, to be gospel-centered in all that we do. Let me tell you why abortion should be commended or considered by God to be included in this commandment, simply because it's taking human life. The baby in the womb is a human life. Human life is not arrived at at stages, and I'm grateful for that. You are not more human when you graduate from high school than when you were in first grade, right? People try to say, well, the fetus isn't really a human life yet. And I always say, well, what kind of life is it? Is it not human life? Is it Independence Day, like alien, like Sigourney Weaver, whatever, back in the 90s? Is that what it is? Is it going to pop out and sing a song? I mean, really, it's silly. If you're unsure about it, why would you take a chance even to murder? If I knew one of my kids was behind a door, but I didn't know what was there, I wouldn't take a rifle out and shoot through that door because it might be one of my kids. I value life that much. So what I'm about to give you is not original to me, but it's something very instrumental for you. It's called the SLED argument, S-L-E-D. And this comes from Stand to Reason Ministries. You're not familiar with Greg Kokel. He's a Christian apologist. I would really encourage you. But he breaks down four logical arguments about why life is precious. Friends, I can give you the scriptures, but I want to give you some logical arguments from the scriptures about why abortion itself is wrong. Four quick things, sled. First is size. The unborn is clearly smaller than a, than a person who's lived for many years. I think that's pretty obvious. If it's hard to reason how difference in size, though, disqualifies someone from being a person. A four-year-old is smaller than a 14-year-old, mostly speaking. Can we kill the four-year-old because she's not as big as a teenager? (laughs) Uh, Human value is not based on size. I'm grateful for that. Your pastor is grateful for that. Because some of you I'm looking at right now are like the Hulk. 
and you can like squeeze me and squeeze all the lifeblood out of me within a, a few seconds. I'm grateful that life is not based on size. That four-year-old is still equally a person, even though she differs in that characteristic. That's a huge, huge argument. In the same way, the unborn, the baby in the womb is smaller than a four-year-old. But if we can't kill the four-year-old because she's smaller, then we can't kill the unborn because she's smaller too. Size. Second, level development. The unborn is also less developed than a human being who's already born. How does that qualify, though, from a person from being uh, unborn from being a person? A four-year-old girl cannot bear children because her reproductive system is less developed than a 14-year-old girl. But that doesn't disqualify her from being a person, though, does it? She is still equally valuable as a child-bearing teen. The unborn is also less developed than the four-year-old, so let's follow that logic. If we can't disqualify the four-year-old from being a person for the same reason we can't disqualify the 14-year-old, how can we disqualify the unborn who's less developed than other human beings? What about environment? The unborn is located in a different environment than the born human. I, I, I think it would be cool. I don't know if God can do this. I'm sure he can. To make a baby where you could actually like be alive in your mom's womb and know what's going on. I think that would be kind of an interesting experience. But we can't do that. But how does your location affect your value? Can changing your environment affect your status as a person? Friends, where you are has no bearing on who you are, right? I hope it doesn't. An astronaut who spacewalks in space is not less human because he's above the earth. A scuba diver who swims underwater and spelunkers who crawl in caves, which more power to you for the non-claustrophobic people here, they're equally as valuable as humans as those who ride in hot air balloons. If changing your environment can't change your fundamental status, then being inside or outside of a mother's womb or attached to the uterus can't be relevant either. How could a seven-inch journey through the birth canal magically transform a valueless human into a valuable person? Nothing has changed except their location. Finally, what about decree of dependence? The unborn is dependent upon the mother's body for nutrition and proper environment. It's hard to see how, uh, depending on the person, uh, upon another person disqualifies you from being a person. Our son has autism. You know, many of you know that. He can't dress himself. He, he, can find, he can find cookies when he wants them. Trust me, we know that. But it's hard to see how even four-year-old Simeon, almost four-year-old Simeon, or an invalid, or someone who's in a wheelchair, or the elderly, probably the greatest abuse of this commandment that we have, are less of a person because they have someone helping take care of them. Newborns and toddlers still depend on their parents to provide nutrition after they're born. Indeed, some world, third world countries require children to breastfeed because formula is not available. Uh, Jesse and Sarah, I have this for you. We texted about this last night. Please remind me after the sermon. Some of this stuff is not available after for most countries. But can you imagine a mother killing her newborn son because he depends on her body for nutrition? Or imagine you witness a toddler fall into a swimming pool. Would you be justified in declaring him not valuable because he depended on you for survival and he fell in without you being there? Of course you wouldn't. That's ridiculous. Since the unborn depends on his mother in the same way, it's not reasonable to disqualify his value there either. Friends, a woman's right to choose things is very precious, and I affirm that. But protecting human life is the most precious thing on earth. If you're here today and you've had an abortion, this is not here to shame you or to condemn you. That's not my point. Many of you in this room know someone who's been through that. There is forgiveness Friends, we must have a culture where that is 
forgiven in Christ. There are consequences to that. There, you know, the other side says, well, uh, throughout the Bible, throughout those arguments, you know, no one has ever changed by having an abortion. Oh, really? I've never met anyone who's had an abortion that has not been changed at some level by what has happened. It changes a person. It really does. They can put all the makeup on it they want, but the fact is it is a human life, even at the point of conception. Friends, we also, in this commandment, we need to stand up for the unborn. Pray, 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 pray that the gospel goes through this nation. Pray for legislation that God may raise up. But we don't trust in legislation, friends. We trust in the gospel, spirit-changing power of God Himself. You write to all your authorities. You write to everyone. But you remember that it takes a living the gospel-centered life and sharing the gospel is how we show the, price, the pricelessness of life, most of all. And if you know someone who's had an abortion, love them, care for them, point them to the cross. If you've had an abortion, take it to Jesus. He, there is forgiveness in Him. What about the elderly? Friends, we need to remember that the elderly are precious people. I've had the pr- privilege and blessing of teaching the, uh, the young person's class, Don Harrison. The, uh, w- uh, the young person's class. The average age in there, I think, is probably in the, in the later stage of life, but I think they're the youngest people here. If you haven't met this group, come at 9 a.m. on Sunday at the very back there, and you can talk to us. But I can tell you, this, these people here are more active, more vibrant, more wise than I have ever been in my life. Older people need the protection as well. Let me give you an illustration. A professor in a world-acclaimed, this is a true story, not a, one of those proverbial pastor stories, but a professor in a world-acclaimed medical school once posed this question to his medical students, an ethical problem. He said, here's the family situation. I want you to track with this. The father has syphilis. Natalie, if I'm saying that correctly. The mother has TB. They've already had four kids. The first is blind. The second had died. The third is deaf. And the fourth also now has TB. And the mother and father are pregnant again, and they're coming to you as the doctor, and they're asking, should we have an abortion or should we not? And the students gave various individual opinions and all this sort of thing. And the press goes, no, 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 what I want you to do, students, is go in groups and give me an opinion. Take 20 minutes and talk about it. 20 minutes come back, and they all come back to the same conclusion, abortion. That's the only thing that will save this life and this mother. Professor says, congratulations, medical students. You have just killed the life of Beethoven, the great composer. Think about that for a second. Friends, life is precious. Life is absolutely precious. If you are here today and you have let your politics inform you that no matter what the cost, a woman's choice is more precious than a human's life, friends, you need to repent and take that to the cross. I am not saying that as any political party. I am not saying that as anyone but a pastor who knows what God's Word says. Friends, a human life, even if it is at the cost of incest, of rape, or whatever it is, is still human. There are families out there who try for years to get pregnant and won't. They'll take on that baby. It's precious. Don't forget that fact. It's precious. Let's apply this and go home, okay? And you can beat me up later. It works that way. Let's apply this. Friends, how does this apply to you more directly? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. The last thing is application. Matthew chapter 5. How does this apply to you? I want to give four principles. We'll call this murder in you, murder in me, if you will. 
you know, I always find, I'm sorry, I've got a lot of references of TV. I always, that old uh, TV show, Murder, She Wrote, I would never want to be her friend. <laughs> Everywhere she went, someone died, friends. Think about that. How does this apply to you today? It applies this way. First, it comes out of Matthew chapter 5, and I'll encourage you. I know the sermon will go about five minutes longer than usual. Our average sermon is 42 minutes. We're shooting for 48, 49. Are we cool with that? Okay. I keep track. Some of you said, Darren, what happened to the green iPad? It's right up here on an iPhone. So there you go. It's right here. I understand the time. But yes, this is so important, guys. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21. Matt read this, but I think it's worth going over again. Uh, do, 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 do. I told our Sunday school class I'm never good at sword drills, so here we go. Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22 says, says this. You've heard it said of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. We're going to break this down. First thing I want you to see, how does this apply to you, friends? The obvious answer here, and many of you know this already, but having anger towards others that desires their physical harm is a murderous spirit. Jesus said what God looks at is the heart, not the behavior. Uh, There are a thousand reasons why you don't act on your desires, but your desires are what matter. You say, well, why does it matter as long as I don't do it? I mean, really, does it matter that much? Friends, when you desire someone's harm, you are guilty of breaking this commandment. I've confessed to you throughout my life, there are times that uh, Matt and Gilbert, I think we all as pastors struggle with this at some point. You look at another person's ministry as a pastor and say, man, why do they have all this success? Or man, if our church could just do boom, 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 we would have this great operation here. Lord, forgive me. That is a pastor's struggle. And I get mad. Sometimes even as pastors, we get mad at other pastors thinking, well, God, why did you bless this person that way? I mean, God, I'm being faithful here. I'm doing all these things that you're trying to do. You've asked me to do. So why haven't you blessed me just the same? Friends, that is a murderous spirit. And it all starts in the heart, even for pastors, elders, teachers. Let me ask you some questions. Do you have a list of people in your head that you could wish could just like disappear or get out of your life? That's a murderous spirit. Who is it that you'd love to see fall flat on their face and be humiliated? Friends, that even includes political candidates. Do you ever fantasize? Do you ever fantasize about telling people off? Who do you gossip about with your hearts? Or probably the one, I'm not from the South, but probably the one I fall most trap into is, you know, you say this great story, you know, this guy's really ugly, blah, 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 but bless his heart. <laughs> bless his heart. <laughs> do you have a girl, guys, you wish would just inexplicably gain 30 pounds because are girls that, because they're so beautiful, you think, and you're not beautiful. Friend, you are as beautiful as God has made you and be rejoice in that. Do you have fits of rage against others that are most unseen by people? Or do you play that game Grand Theft Auto way too much, and you know that offing someone in the game is a little too much? Friends, that's evidences of a murderous spirit. It's a cancer to our soul. Secondly, how does this apply to you? Thinking of people as anything less than the special image of God that they are is a type of murder. This is pretty significant because Jesus says here in verse 22, he says, you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Whoever insults his brother, his brother here, especially those in the Christian faith. Why, why would he say fool? I mean, foolishness. Here's why. Because when you insult someone and call them a derogatory name, 
you were recognizing them as, as spe- you were rec- not recognizing them rather as a special creation of God. You're thinking of them less than God has made them to be. Friends, the question for you is what, who, or what group is it that you think of just as a group of people, a group you don't particularly like rather than an individual made in the image of God? Let me just be very practical with you. Is it a certain race? Is it the Arabs? Is it the blacks? Is it the Hispanics, the whites, the Mexicans? You say, but they're just all those things. Yes, they are, whatever ethnicity they are, but they are also individuals made in the image of of God with the same wants, hurts, needs that you have as well. Their kids suffer just like your kids suffer. This is not a social gospel message, friends. This is just seeing life as precious in God's eyes. Maybe it's the Muslims. Maybe it's illegal immigrants. Maybe it's the religious right. Maybe it's Raiders fans. I mean, seriously. Like, if you're a Chiefs fan, I mean, some Chiefs fans like, you know, Raiders fans, you know. If you don't think of them as individuals made in the image of God, you think of them more as a derogatory classification. And that hits home. This is not to say we shouldn't have laws in our land. This is not to say we shouldn't do things and be administrating well. I'm not saying that. But when you are confronted with an individual, you see in them something just like you, and you get mad about it because they're different than you, then, friend, that sin is on your head, not theirs. When you think of people in terms of stats or categories, you've often forgot that they're every bit as much in the image of God as you are. Aren't you glad God didn't do that with us? Christian, aren't you glad today that God didn't look down and say, you wicked, rebellious sinner, I'm done with you, get away from me. Aren't you glad, Christian, today, this is why the gospel permeates every sermon that we give, that when you see the gospel for what it is, you see that you were that rebel. You see that you were that one that shouldn't be liked. You see that you were that one that deserves hellfire, but God loved anyway. What a great thing. What a great thing. You can have anger towards others and have a murderous spirit. You can think of people as less than they are. And these next two are in context, but maybe in a different angle than you've heard. But you can turn, number three, a deaf ear to the sufferings of the poor while living in luxury is a type of murder according to the Scriptures. I'll just read it for you. It's printed on my notes. James chapter 5, verses 1 and verse 5. Not 1 through 5, the whole context, but especially 1 and 5. James says, You rich, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, friends, this is not a social justice gospel I'm presenting. I fought that with several people at William Jewell College. This is not what this is talking about. This is talking to Christians who believe that Christ is the only way to heaven. James is talking about when we as Christians, as a pastor, we turn our deaf ear to those in need. We went on pursuing the American dream. We went on pursuing piling up stuff totally oblivious to the cries of those people going around us. Say, well, why is that murder, Darren? I don't understand. I didn't do anything to them. Why am I responsible? Am I really my brother's keeper? Remember the whole commandment to murder is is built upon rather the preciousness of human life. James is saying that these rich considered their convenience to be more important than the lives of the poor. James here is not talking about giving away money. James is talking about being involved in the lives of those. John, thank you so much. And deacons, thank you so much for being a part of our benevolence ministry. We help out literally. Uh, John, I don't know the stats. Probably dozens of people a year, brother, I think is pretty accurate. And with that, our deacons do a great job of not just meeting a need, but trying to meet the spiritual need as well. Grateful our church emphasizes with that. Friends, we have hundreds of foster kids 
in Casey Moe that need homes, and without the type of loving home, there's no chance they are going to thrive and reach their God-given potential. Some of you may need to pray about is adopting in my future. Is, is adoption something that we need to consider? Friends, we can't say we're disciples of Christ and turn a deaf ear to the poor. James says, if we put our heads in the sand and ignore them, we're murdering them. Are we our brother's keeper? Yes, to some degree we are, especially in the household of God. Friend, what are you most pursuing in your life right now? What is your career? Is your career all about you? College students, can I mention some of you young people? Why are you going to get into the career you're going to get into? Is it because you want the personal acquisition? Is it all about you? Or have you thought about how you might use that career to bless other people that are not like you and unlike you? Not saying everyone should go into the ministry. Please, we talked about it in our Sunday school class. You don't have the call to ministry, don't go there. But have you asked God, Lord, how can I impact the poor in my neighborhood? Maybe it's right here. Maybe you live in a very upper middle class white neighborhood. That's fine. Praise the Lord. Because you know what? There are people in an upper middle class white neighborhood who need Jesus, right? There are also people who live in lower class areas from our church. So be it. Friends, embrace what God has given you. Be content with what you have. But have you asked God, how can I use it for your glory here? Finally, not giving the gospel to those whom God has sent is a type of murder. Number four, God is comparing Ezekiel to a watchman. He says in verse 8, if I say to the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 6 and 8, if I say to the wicked, a wicked one, you shall not surely die and do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. The wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require of you. Friends, do we really believe the gospel? then let's pray as well as we consider our budget, as we consider our giving, as we consider our praying, that we pray for those who go. Uh, I talked with one of you, you know who you are, who visited a friend recently who's in a very tough part of Southeast Asia, very Muslim-focused part. It's a very difficult area, and they're faithfully expounding God's word there. Would you pray that the gospel would go forth wherever God sends you? Some of you who are retired, God may call you to give up a year or two of your life to go serve somewhere you never thought of. What a great way to spend retirement. Doug, I wasn't going to say this, this is totally off the cuff, but Doug Hager will be going out in his retirement four months after a hip surgery, brother, will be going out to uh, um, uh, disaster relief and helping them November 11th. If you want to go with Doug, see him. He's in the back there, white and uh, very nice guy. Teresa, lest we forget your husband, and you know this, uh, sister, wherever you're at, somewhere back there, your husband is over in Ghana right now, northern Ghana, uh, sharing the gospel, John Moody is right now. Friends, God may call you to go on a short-term trip, but if we don't take the gospel to other people, we are in a sense committing murder, spiritual murder, because we have not shared with them the life-giving blood of Christ. I'll end with this. Friends, Christ has fulfilled this command that we've all broken. But even though he lived a perfect life, he was executed for us. He was put to death for us. Rejoice in that. Many of you say, Darren, this is a hard sermon. It is, but Christian... You are found in who? Christ. Who is your life? Christ. Who is your forgiveness? Christ. Who is your everything? Christ. Here's the irony. Never was our murder more on display when we crucified him. We say, but I didn't do that. But our sins put him there. If you're not a Christian here today, Christ is the only way. Let's close with that. Friends, we love you. Let's close in prayer as we go out today.